person's body system, they're going to stimulate the colon at different times, and it could be personalized to that individual, wow. which was it's like which a is, toothbrush with different like vibration the different modes. vibrations. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by White Lotus. Have you guys watched White Lotus? Uh, season one, yes. Did you find it? I enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. So say more because I'm baffled by why this is such a huge deal. I didn't know it was a huge deal. I Everybody's saw about episode it. season one while I was on a long haul flight somewhere or from somewhere. And I was, I, I fell asleep through at least two thirds <laughs> of it, which was the point. You know, I, I, I often choose TV shows or movies to watch that I know I'm not really going to be very interested in. That's and smart. then I fall asleep. That's smart. And I weirdly, I wake up as soon as the movie ends and yep. then I have to choose another bad movie to go back to sleep to. And you never go back and watch those things to find out what you missed? Well, there, there were several features of White Lotus season one that, that got my attention. So I, in fact, did rewind a couple times to find out, like, who amongst these terribly horrible, loathsome people had the most interesting backstory. And I haven't seen season two, but I imagine it to be sort of similar in that we're it, dealing with a lot of really despicable people. Similar, but privilege. worse. But that's the that's what I'm getting at, is, have you watched it? I haven't. No, I'm usually, like, a solid 18 months behind yeah. the curve with yeah. these sort of things, so no. What I struggle with is... There's nobody to like in these things. Yeah, like I need somebody. I need one person. And there there are a couple of characters that start off, you're like, oh, these are the ones I'm going to be able to root for. But by the end, you're like, no, even these ones are terrible. And so I don't get why everybody loves it. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Hi, happy to be here. And by (laughs) Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Chris. Nice to be here, Matt. As a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at tophealthex.org, BU's hub for lifelong learning. What does the X stand for? Exchange. Exchange, oh, right. Right, right, right. So right. snappy and quick. In fact, it's on the wall. There's a poster right there. This is PHX, Populous Health Health <laughs> you Health are, Exchange. Nothing gets by you, Chris. <laughs> nothing. And as a reminder, go on and rate us on your favorite podcast app. We got a new review from Australia. It's entitled One of My Favorite Podcasts. It says, this is a great podcast. Interesting guests covering many different branches of epidemiology. Is Always look forward to listening when an episode is released. Thank you. Is that true? Yes. That we have many interesting guests? W- while you were we, away, we, we had did, guests. We did, in your absence. Yes, we had guests was great. almost every episode. So I'm, so glad I, I'm glad I put an end to that. <laughs> clearly, no more interesting guests. Clearly, Chris listened while he was away. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to bring up. So if you remember last episode, we talked about the sibling design. Do you remember that? Vaguely. And we, we, we raved about it. I got some feedback from somebody who is very knowledgeable on this topic. I don't want to say a name because I don't know if I'm supposed to say names, but the person knows who they are, pointing out that there are indeed advantages to the sibling design, but there are also some downsides that come with it that we really didn't consider. Oh, So they're really good, for example, on the confounding, which we talked about, but they increase the likelihood of things like misclassification and selection bias. So misclassification comes up in part because while, you know, we were dealing with a situation where you have one, you're looking for households where one sibling is early in delivery and one is late. The general population, that's probably evenly distributed. But when you specifically limit to those households with one before and one after, you increase the probability of misclassification. 
And then in general, just the selection bias, the fact that you have to have two siblings that meet those criteria, two, two children that meet that criteria. It's not random who ends up with two children in that. So you end up with some selection bias. So the person was saying good design, but not maybe the secret sauce that we referred to it as. So are we saying that no epidemiologic study is perfect? That is, that is what exactly yeah. what we are saying. Shoot. So thank you to that listener who, who wrote in on that one. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, we are going to look at I'm sure you've heard about it, the big controversial meta-analysis on masks for COVID. Then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about the peer review madness. I'm just going to call it that for the moment. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or Chris just found really fascinating. Yes. Okay, so segment one. So we're talking about, it again, a meta-analysis looked at the impact of masks for reducing COVID. Now I say COVID, but this was actually more generally focused on respiratory viruses. The interpretation of it has been focused on COVID. It was published in the Cochrane Library. So the group that is the gold standard for meta-analyses, I would say. And it was entitled Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses by first author Tom Jefferson of the Department of Continuing Education at Oxford University. This got an altmetric score of 20,000, altmetric being the, <laughs> That's yeah. pretty the, you know, the, the <laughs> site, the service that, that ranks the impact in things like Twitter and the news and all of those things aggregated. And that's a really big score. I've never seen anything that high. Yeah. So some headlines. So masks make little or no difference on COVID-19, comma, flu rates, new study, news break. A major new study shows that masks don't stop the spread of COVID. Will the mandators apologize? Now, that was on MSN, but I believe that was an opinion piece, right? So that's not a news-specific story. And we're going to talk about some of those opinion pieces. Yes, masks reduce the risk of spreading COVID despite a review saying they don't. That was from Yahoo News. Again, also an opinion piece now refuting what the meta-analysis says. And then major media outlets mum on new studies showing masks make little to no difference in stopping COVID-19. The Daily Caller. We know the Daily Caller. Is that Donald Trump? No, no. That is uh, Tucker Carlson's outlet, oh, I believe. Is, it, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you can think what you want about that. But those are the ones I chose. So it must be true. So Chris, give us the overview of what happened in this study. Okay. This is going to be, be challenging. And I, I'm going to wander around a little bit in my head here because I, I had so many competing thoughts about this study. But I'll start at the beginning, which was when I got up one morning and, and took out my cup of coffee and pulled up my digital version of the New York Times. And there was this, this editorial by Brett Stevens talking about this study and the argument was was kind of long and I will say angry and accusatory mm -hmm. okay. yep. and basically said, you know, this mad analysis proves that the whole mass mandate thing was a fallacy and that collective egg on face across the public health community for for promoting this heresy. And now I had when I read that, I had not actually read the meta-analysis, and, and mm -hmm. I'm going to go further and say, now that I've been assigned to read the meta-analysis, I still have not actually read the meta-analysis because, for those of you who know, Cochrane Reviews are incredibly long. This one is 300 pages and change. And I will also say that, that meta-analyses in general are very boring to read, and Cochrane meta-analyses in particular <laughs> are excruciatingly boring to read. They just go on and on and on and on and on, and the details are, are like overwhelming. 
to the point where after a while you can't really figure out anything because there's just there's so much information. They're so systematic to the point that that you are paralyzed by the data that they give you. This is how my experience with the conference. Yep. Okay. Um, particularly when they're dealing with a, with a with a subject that's somewhat ambiguous, and I think this 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 is one where it is somewhat ambiguous. But let me give you the, the gist of it. There was there was a series of earlier Cochrane reviews on the effectiveness of masks for prevention of viral infections, which were published prior to the, the COVID pandemic. So they decided that given the importance of the COVID pandemic and the primacy of masks in uh, our responses to the pandemic, that they would they would update the review. Now, what differentiated this review from the previous iterations was that in this case, they decided only to focus on randomized controlled trials or clustered randomized controlled trials as opposed to observational studies. So the previous meta-analyses included all those observational studies. And the authors here justify that by pointing out that observational studies tend to be subjective to all sorts of biases that randomized controlled trials are not. However, before we go too far into the results, let us just point out that there are many things that randomized controlled trials struggle to, to measure. And I think mask use in a population setting would be a particularly difficult study to design. And, and one of the things I was doing as I was reading this was to go back and look at some of the source papers and try to get a sense as to how they did it. And the more you read these, these, uh, you know, these contributing papers that fed into the meta-analysis, the more you realize how very difficult it is to design a proper randomized control trial to test the question. And, and so I, my discourse here by noting that I'm, I'm not 100% sure I agreed with that decision that the randomized control trials were necessarily the I'm best way you. to look at this. Yeah. I think that that is a big assumption, and I think it is a tenuous assumption. Now, given that, they you know, had about 76 randomized controlled trials or cluster randomized controlled trials, of which 60, say six, I think, of those were in the previous analysis. And so there were 11 new studies added onto this one, all of which were randomized controlled trials. And of those 76 trials that were included in this compendium, precisely two included data from the COVID era. So 70, let me do the math here, 74 out of 76 studies did not actually test whether masks were effective during the COVID pandemic. And, and, and also worth noting, they were not all just about masks. And they were not all about masks. They were about hand washing and some of them about gargling. I, I'm not going to talk about the right. gargling studies because I think that, that that doesn't go anywhere useful. But the, so we'll focus on the masks and the, and the high quality masks, the medium quality masks, and then the hand washing uh, results. But it, it is worth noting that, that um, Brett Stevens did not comment on the fact that 74 out of 76 studies did not come from the COVID era before he condemned the entire thing. So, you know, Brett, I think you sh actually should have looked a little bit more carefully at the details before flaming off on that one. Be that as it may, he is correct that in the... In the meta-analyses that came out of the masks versus no mask studies, it was a wash as to whether the masks contributed anything. The relative risks for masking versus non-masking were about the same, were about one. So they didn't seem to be particularly effective. But when you drill into the details of the Cochrane review, which, which unfortunately you must do to try to make sense of this, because just looking at the little, you know, forest plots doesn't really tell you what happened very well. You learn a couple of things. And first of all, most of these studies were relatively small. Most of them were pretty bad. Most of them were like very susceptible to various uh, biases. A particular one is the fact that they're almost by definition, can be no blinding because you can't have a placebo mask. How Everybody knows whether they're wearing a mask or not a mask. And so that part of a randomized control trial is immediately violated by the fact that everybody knows who got the intervention, who didn't. 
And because of the probability that people are going to cross over between these two groups because the control group not wearing a mask knows they're vulnerable and are probably going to put on a mask when they feel like they're vulnerable. And conversely, the ones who were wearing masks are not particularly adherent. And so the difference between the assigned groups is actually very, very, very hazy. Who actually did what? And in one of their summaries, they looked at the mask adherence rates. And, um, and they were very low, and they got worse over time. They started at a low of around 40% adherence, which is terrible, and then they went down into the 20s. And so, you know, saying that the masks did or did not work is really a different question. They, they did or did not work, except that most people didn't actually wear them most of the time. And so any conclusions about whether they do or do not work is, 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 is I think, is kind of, is kind of tenuous. But I will agree with Mr. Stevens on the point that if our question is, do they work in a practical sense when people are supposed to use them and are, we're relying on them to use them, he may have a good point there that the non-adherents, obviously people that actually wear the masks, they're not going to work. And so this is where it gets very muddied, in my opinion, and confusing. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this because I, I, I want to move quickly from, from the masks to the hand-washing studies, and then I want to talk about viruses a little bit. So within the masks analyses, there were two questions. There was like, you know, uh, surgical masks versus no masks. And then there was a set of studies that were uh, high quality, that is to say N95 respirator masks versus surgical masks. And the surgical masks versus no masks analyses did not show a protective benefit. But again, almost all of those were prior to COVID and so are irrelevant to the question of COVID per se. And then the surgical versus N95 masks showed that there was a benefit to the N95 masks over the surgical masks. But again, when you drill into the details, it looked at like most of that benefit derived from two of the studies that were in healthcare workers, where the compliance of these masks is likely to be higher. And there, the benefit was quite striking, as you would expect, because if worn correctly, there's no reason why these masks should not work. They should work, right? They, they, you know, it's, it's basically physics. They're a filter, and they will reduce viral loads. And so that was, um, you know, interesting to note though I don't know what the practical takeaway from that is because N95 masks are very hard to wear for long periods of time and very difficult to wear sustainably over weeks and months. The, the third piece of this was whether hand washing was effective and there there appeared to be stronger evidence that it was mildly effective with a relative you know, risk reduction of around 14% for people who used alcohol-based hand wash or you know, were assigned to versus those who were not assigned to do so. And the difference was statistically significant, but the magnitude of the effect was, was relatively small. And again, not, um, not COVID specific. And this, of course, was almost entirely, in fact, not almost, this was entirely, entirely driven yeah. by the influenza results. Yeah. Now, I, I, I want to stop there about the, about the, the meta-analysis itself and, and quickly turn it back over the, to, the, to the two of you so we can talk about this. But there is one thing I want to add into the discussion before we, we advance, which is that kinetics of viral of, of infection from influenza and COVID-19 are not the same. They are not the same. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, before we knew anything about this virus, we assumed they were the same and that the traditional you know, methods we use to control influenza infections, which relied primarily on hand washing because influenza is not an aerosolized virus. It is a direct contact virus or an, a, a virus that transmits through fomites. 
And so because of its mode of transmission, you would assume that hand washing would be very effective or would be a very useful thing to do. Whereas what we learned over time with COVID is that, in fact, it is an aerosol driven mask. It is an airborne disease. And so in, in an airborne disease, whether or not you wash your hands doesn't matter uh, because that's not how you're getting the infection. It's, it's, it's being transmitted through tiny droplet nuclei that are getting deep into the lungs and causing a, a viral pneumonia. It's a, it's a totally different mechanism of transfer. And so for that kind of mechanism, hand washing would, would presumably be quite ineffective. And in fact, we've learned that it is, I think, generally considered to be ineffective, as opposed to things that protect air transfer, such as filtering the air or, you, you know, opening the windows to dilute viral particles or using UV lights to kill viral particles that are in the air or using masks to filter out viral particles. And so that sort of fundamental difference between the pre-COVID and the COVID era is a really important distinction that was totally ignored in the Brett Stevens editorial. So I want to stop there and, yep. and, and, and like let the two of you kind of ch- chime in on this. Jess, what, what, what was your take? Oh, goodness. This was a doozy. And I was glad, Chris, that you were, <laughs> you were on this week to review this one. I, I immediately f- regretted volunteering <laughs> this paper, by the way. <laughs> When you were on page 185 of the text. I had a few thoughts to this one. I mean, I think there were a number of auxiliary factors related to this study that you talked about the Brett Stevens piece. There was another piece in the Times. I don't exactly know Zainab how to... Zainab Tufeki, right, who published an editorial the day after Brett Stevens, refuting his argument basically point by point. Then there was the lead author on this paper who led his own media campaign interpreting his results to select media outlets in a way that I think led to Brett Stevens' interpretation and the interpretation of others from a very politicized mm-hmm. perspective. And so this this article had so much media that when I actually got to read the article, it wasn't as dramatic as I was expecting it to be, especially in light of the, you know, the attention the first author had drawn to his perceptions of the conclusions. And I would add as well that the the Cochrane editor, you probably saw this as well, the Cochrane editor also wrote an accompanying editorial that disputed the position of the lead author and said, no, our, this article is not saying that masks are useless. This article is not concluding basically one way or the other on that point. And so this was a very, very confusing piece to come to, having seen all the media. And I think my underlying theme was Yes, there were so many challenges in the studies that were included in this review. I think you, Chris, touched perfectly on some of the real challenges. One of them that you can't actually randomize mask wearing. It's like my favorite teaching example about randomized studies, the you know study of circumcision to prevent HIV transmission. And you're not going to randomize circumcision. You know, there's, there's certain things people are obviously aware of if it happens to them or not. And masking is one of them. There's such a small number of studies and the, the conclusions were on the group level, which are distinct from conclusions that would be drawn on the individual level. The question of, is a mask effective in preventing someone from getting infected with COVID or flu or any virus is a very different question than, are masks effective as a community-based intervention to reduce disease transmission in the community? 
And that question was brought up in the second, that issue was brought up in the second New York Times editorial, that there's a distinction here between efficacy of the device for the individual versus the community level endpoints. And that was totally lost in the first author's media campaign. And it became very complicated. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, so speaking specifically to what you're what you're getting at there, around, I'm not a fan of promoting scientific work by the authors. I mean, I think you get yourself into a complicated situation when you do more than just simply report on what you found and you start to argue for a particular position. Now you're in a position where you can't now say any future evidence that refutes what I say. It's going to be very hard to to backtrack at that point because you've made such a public statement of, of what you believe. So I think that's not a great idea. I have said in the past that I, I'm not a big fan of discussion sections in general. <laughs> I mean, they're great for people who are coming in cold to a topic and, you know, want to put in content, the work put in context, but for the folks who actually know the body of evidence, your interpretation of your results is, you know, you have reasons to give a particular interpretation Huge bias, and I'm not that interested. Now everyone (laughs) disagrees with me on this, so I will admit that I'm wrong, but I'm still, I'm not a huge fan of discussion sections. But then you get to the question of what is the question that this study is trying to answer? We have evidence that masks work under ideal conditions, right? They are they are a product that is designed and tested, as Chris says, to filter out pathogens with, you know, the N95 mask with a, a certain, you know, level of effectiveness. So under perfect idealized conditions, we know they work. That's not really the relevant question. The question is, as Chris says, they're hard to actually wear for long periods of time and to wear correctly. So you're really getting at the question of what, what happens in the real world. Even within that, there are different questions you could ask, like, as you pointed out, Jess, what is the effect on the individual? What's the effect on the community? What's the effect of a policy recommending somebody wear masks or or groups of people wear masks? And all of those questions are context dependent, right? So the question of wearing a mask during previous influenza epidemics, when you were probably one of the only people who was going to wear a mask in the United States, I mean, you weren't the only one, but very few people, versus during COVID when a large group of people are wearing a mask, those are two different questions. But then add to it, COVID, we were not just masking, we were also staying at home. There was, you know, there were all these other things going on that it's going to be very hard to tease out. And then add to that, the questions are also going to depend on what level of transmission is happening. So if there's, you know, we're wearing masks during a period of low transmission, the effect is going to be less than the wearing it during a period of high transmission. So the idea that you could ever have a single meta-analysis that would answer the question, do masks work, is absurd. And then add to it, we only have two studies during COVID. I don't know what we learn from this that we could ever say anything truly definitive. So I'm kind of baffled. And it should be noted that of the the many studies that were included in the meta-analysis looking at, at mask versus no mask, amongst those that showed a benefit were the COVID studies. Yep. Yep. So, you know, 
so this again, kind of like you know, two different diseases. Influenza is not COVID. Of the and in, you know, the transmission of influenza is largely indirect through contact with surfaces or direct droplet nuclei, not droplet nuclei, but direct droplet exposure. So it's a different disease from an aerosolized disease like COVID. And so you wouldn't think that masks would be particularly effective right. against influenza. And indeed, the meta-analysis suggests that they are not. But of the two COVID studies, it looked like they were effective. And so that also gets lost to this dynamic. Yeah, and and the fact that they worked in healthcare workers to me is should put to rest the idea that do masks work? Of course, in in contexts where you know you have people who are trained to wear them, they're highly exposed, they are wearing them, you know, well fitted for moderate periods of time, they work. So that's to me, that's not the relevant question. I guess the question I want to ask you both is why don't we have more randomized trials? Is it because Ethically, we didn't think we could do randomized trials in which we told some people not of, to wear of masks. masks. You mean in general? Why yeah, do we not of, have of more randomized trials of, like of masking during COVID? I think right. it would have been unethical. Yeah, yeah. simply. I think it would. I mean, it's a, it was a potentially lethal disease with a one percent right. mortality rate. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I assume you, you that's the reason. You can't say take a gamble, um, be in the placebo arm, and have a mask like with holes in it. Like, what would that look like? Right. I think it also. No mask or, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you could holes. design, you could design yeah, a mask, right? That was, mask, you know? that was, yeah, that looked like it was a real mask, but it filtered. <laughs> but obviously you wouldn't do that. And so I, you know, to me, there's just, there were a lot of problems. And, to, so, and so then to say there, we're going to rule out all the observational studies when we know there were some very high quality observational studies using quasi, you know, experimental designs sure. that, that showed some benefits. I'm not saying those are the end all be all, and I'm not saying there aren't problems with those, but to just do to draw the line and say, we're only going to look at the randomized trials, which end up being, you know, cluster randomized trials largely. I just, I'm not, I'm not sure it makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you also have to sort of like gauge this against our personal experiences of, of, of how masks are used, uh, were used during the pandemic, continue to be used. I remember one day I was out on my boat in the middle of Papanesset Bay hundreds of yards away from shore. And I pass a lobsterman and he's going one direction. I'm going the other direction. I wave to him and he's wearing a mask. He's the only guy in the boat. And you're thinking like, okay, somewhere the messaging has gotten lost here. Okay. When you are uh, alone at sea, you cannot get COVID. You do not need to wear a mask, you know, but that is an example of mask compliance, which would is completely bonkers because the risk of getting COVID at sea is zero. Yeah. But on, I can see, but I mean, wearing it on, you know, both there's wind and, you know, you want to keep your fit. Like I think I definitely wore my mask. Maybe he saw you coming sure. by. And he no, 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 no. I don't mean wind with COVID. I mean, wind is cold on my face. Oh, I well, wore my well, mask. I wearing a surgical more. mask. I think I would have worn a scarf personally. I wore them a lot more during winter just because um, I liked the, the, you there know, is, the warmth. There is that fear. And then, you know, then you, 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 the, the more common uh, version of that is people who, who are driving on the mass pike and they're the only one in the car um, and they're wearing a mask with the windows sure. closed. And you're like, you can't get COVID from yourself. So wearing a mask does not make sense. And yet there is an example of compliance. And then the reverse is, you know, people wearing their masks as they walk through the streets, which seems unnecessary because it's very difficult to transmit COVID out of doors. They walk into the, into the restaurant, they immediately sit down and take off their masks. Okay. So they have now gone into the high risk area where COVID transmission could occur. And that is where the mask is removed. That is another example of where none of this actually made sense on a, on a, as a public health intervention. And so you wonder like in these trials, are they doing the same kind of thing? You know, I wonder about the details of how this all actually went, went down. And none of that is clear, of course, for the meta-analysis. You have to go back to the source papers to understand, which no one has the time to do. 
They did. Uh, it, they did. Know, one of the interesting things I thought was why, was why this went forward with Cochrane, kind of why this was green-lighted given the limited number of studies. that they, you know, So this is, the, these authors have done this analysis. It looks like every two or three years since... It's been at least a decade. So if you go back, they have, and this was the update. They've been updating this kind of analysis, looking at the efficacy of masks and other interventions in the context of transmission of respiratory pathogens. And and this and the last one that they did, which we accidentally sent around, and I actually read the 2020 yeah, version. Sorry about that. No, no, that's okay. They didn't have any papers on COVID, and it was published kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic, and they had no papers on COVID. And I was reading that, and I was like, this is particularly useless right now because there's nothing on COVID. And so they updated it a couple years later, but with a small number of studies and True. with this clear disagreement between the editorial staff and. The conclusions that were drawn from on a personal or kind of narrative basis by the lead author, and it was it was confusing why they waited in at this moment with yeah. inconclusive results that were inevitably going to picked up, be picked up and politicized. And I think it was it was clear that this would be translated in a political way, and that would be evident. M- masking has been so yeah. political throughout right. the pandemic. There's no way it wasn't going to be. It's a complicated question to try to answer. I mean, when I start with these, any any study that we look at, I always start off, okay, what's my prior going in? And my prior going in is masks work, but they probably don't have a massive population level effect because we would know, right? We would see that because we had all these mask mandates. If, you know, they worked and they were they were highly effective despite, you know, compliance not being perfect, you know, the the surges that we saw would have been far lower than they were. So we would know that. So it's somewhere in between. The question is, do we think that, you know, a really well-designed study is going to be able to capture that? There were some studies in here that found not just no benefit, but harm. Yes. Interesting. Mm. What do you make of those? Because I can come up with a couple of different explanations, but I'm curious what you all thought of those. I, I, I didn't. I looked at them and said, the, you know, we got a bad bounce on the ball that day. But I, I That's don't one know. possibility, right? Yeah, that, I don't know. That, that this is just a distribution. Right? So if if the true, let's say, let's say, for example, there were truly no effect of, let's say, masking policy, not Should masking. Be but around the yeah, month, then you'll right? see some harmful, some protective, and some centered on the null. Depending on the size of the study, you'll see bigger. You know, so that's one possibility. Another is bias that they're, you know, these are just not great studies. And I give that argument a little bit of credibility just because, you know, masks should work under idealized conditions. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. And then the third explanation is, no, they actually could, in theory, lead to harm because maybe what happens is you have a an intervention that is mildly effective, let's say, for example, but because you're wearing it, you now go and expose yourself more as opposed to the person who chooses, I don't want to wear masks, so I'm just not going to go out at all. They're at very low risk. You know, that's another possibility. And I don't I don't know what to make of those, but I, I did find it interesting. Right. I think the fact that there was no way to randomize people's behavior made it impossible to understand that. I mean, I think that is very plausible that, right, that that that, that wearing a mask makes people feel like they're a little bit protected. And so they might go into environments where there might be a higher viral burden yeah. than there would be. And I think, you know, there's other elements, too, about about the public health system that we are all a part of. And I do think it's worth thinking about to the extent, you know, do we have, like you use the term pie in the pie in the face, 
Like, does does this pie in the face? Um, does this article like should we feel like we have pie in the face as a result of this article? or others, given the intensity of the messaging around mm. masks. I mean, that's the, you know, the, the intensity yeah. of the messaging that masks are going to save your life. Masks are going to prevent you from getting this deadly disease. And then, you know, even through a Cochrane, yeah. you know, full body <laughs> push here to look for any evidence that's, that's around, the results seem to be null. Yeah. In, in that, you know, and so do, I mean, I, I think that was Brett Stevens' argument that, you know, the public health and medical establishment, you know, should a little bit step back and say, maybe we pushed this a little prematurely on a, I, a, I a whole, you know, kind I of don't buy a, a whole Monty way. Yeah. Chris, I don't buy that. I yeah. mean, we, you know, if you, if we can go back long away from vaccines or from the Omicron era, where Omicron has turned out to be a, you know, relatively a pussycat compared with its, its, uh, its, uh, earlier cousins put ourselves back in, you know, in the, the spring of 2000, where we've got this new disease that is killing people that is spreading like wildfire across the globe that was going to go and kill between, depending on the math and the estimates you use between six and 28 million people died. Okay. So a lot of people died of this disease. This was not our imagination. And with a lot of ignorance about how the virus is moving around and what its consequences were, particularly what its long-term consequences were, there were so many unknowns. And so we really had to sort of like do the best we could. Now, I, I think actually, if we, if we look back on it, you know, one of the criticisms I would level of the public health response is that earlier on in the pandemic, they did not endorse masks mm -hmm. where I think they, that was a mistake. They should have. That the wise position, given the absence of knowledge about how the virus is to assume the worst and to recommend masks and say, maybe it is an aerosolized disease. Maybe it is transmitting through, uh, you know, droplet nuclear and therefore the only defense would be masks. But we didn't do that. And so I think, you know, to look back and say, you know, we, we overreacted uh, based on what we're learning in, our, in you know, in mid 2023 is a little, you know, I feel like that is a, a tricky argument to thread and it, it almost requires a, like a, a time machine revisionism to kind of pretend that we were not in that global panic at that time. But I, but I think you're I think, very scary. Then. Yeah, no, no. And I agree. But I think you're both right in the sense that I, it's I don't think the issue is that we shouldn't have recommended them. We, sh we, we should have and we should have pushed them hard. I think the issue was we I mean, if you remember, director of the CDC, Redfield said this mask that I have in my hand is more effective than any vaccine, you know, could ever be or something like that, hmm. saying like this. Is, it was the overselling of what masks could do that I think was the the downside. And we should, probably should have been more transparent in saying we need to wear masks. It's not foolproof. You really have to be vigilant. But, you know, we think this is going to, you know, help reduce the transmission. It's not going to end it. And, you know, but then if you do that, are people going to say, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, it's not really going to, it was a tough decision. It's really hard because I think now there's so much, like you're saying, like Monday morning quarterbacking in terms of what could have been done, that it's easy to forget the anxiety of that moment of kind of being in, oh, yeah. you know, being in that moment. And for people who were making these decisions, kind of trying to be as cautious and protective as possible. And then there's there's that. And then there was the intensity of the messaging that I think is in part what have aggravated people like Brett Stevens, the kind of intensity and the certainty that was leveled in regard to vaccines, in regard to, you know, all of these interventions, right? That I think, I yeah. think is like the yeah. context of interpreting the media response to this 
paper, which makes it really messy Agreed. and difficult. Yeah. Well, remember the, the, the golden rule of public health is that no good deed will ever go unpunished. Right? That's, that's yeah. true. And, and, you know, public health's biggest successes never get noticed because they're about things that don't happen. That so, not you know, I mean, we, there was no way we were going to, we were going to come out this looking amazing, but <laughs> the hope was to come out of this looking right. good. And I, you know, I think time will tell, but there are things that I can point to that we didn't do well. And there are things that I think point to that we did really well. And I, I feel like there are two sides on this and none of them are sort of, you know, see the good and the bad. I mean, I shouldn't say that because I definitely know people who are willing to point out their mistakes, but still sort of see uh, our overall response as being really excellent. Whereas I thought it was, you know, I think it was good given the the tools that we had available to us, but it could have been a lot better. And I think big worry that I have is that we're not really going to learn from this, that we're going to end up. We're going to take the wrong message. Back where we were pre-COVID and the next one comes along and we will be similarly flat-footed. Yeah, I, I fear that we do not learn our lessons well. All right, let's uh, move on because we we spent a lot of time on that one. And so we'll, we'll briefly go into the next segment, which is about a short article in Nature, which was called Peer Review Needs a Radical Rethink. I think it's said by Amber... Amber Dance was the name. This is a, you know, again, this is a a little bit of insider baseball because this is about, you know, for those of us who are in the process of submitting articles and being asked to review articles, the peer review process is seen as a, an essential part of the scientific, what should I say, getting your, getting your paper published, that it's a, a gatekeeping mechanism that is designed to improve papers and to keep out the really bad ones. But We have also seen that the number of journals that exist since we all started in this profession has ballooned massively. The more journals there are, the more articles they are looking to process and potentially publish. That means there are more reviews that you're being asked to do, such that now we are getting asked to do reviews constantly and having to constantly say no. If you are an editor, you are constantly struggling to find people who will say yes to your reviews that you want done. And so we're in a bit of an untenable position. And so this article documents that and talks about some things that we might need to do as a radical rethink of the peer review process, though, for those of us who are involved in this, these are not new ideas, but, you know, things like, do we, should we pay reviewers? Should we have professional reviewers whose job it is to review articles and they get paid to do that? And one of the things that, that this article brought up, which is where I want to start, is the idea that some people feel that paying reviewers is unethical. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Unethical to pay me? Um, I think there's a lot of that in public health, but a lot of people think it's unethical to pay me. Um, I think that our, our, our current system is absolutely bonkers. And it is, a, it is sort of a, almost flabbergasting to, to have that argument leveled that it is somehow unethical. So like, let's, let's just lay it out, right? So Dr. Gill writes a grant. It takes six months to write the grant. It gets rejected twice. He finally gets it. Approved good two years Gill. later. Good, good for Dr. Gill. All that time, thousands and thousands of hours put into writing this this stupid grant, which then gives a very small and inadequate amount of money to actually do the research, <laughs> which he diligently does. And then because he doesn't have enough money to do it, he donates more of his time to get the research done, finally getting a paper, which he, you know, is able to send off to the Journal of blah 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 It's an excellent who, journal. Who then <laughs> send it off to peer review to a bunch of other people who are going to donate their time, charging Dr. Gill $5,000 for the rights to publish his article. Yeah. Okay. Which he then signs over the copy. 
copyright for. So up until this point, Dr. Gill has like contributed thousands and thousands and thousands of hours into this, most, many of them unpaid, and is now having to pay to the journal to publish the article that should have been free, in my opinion, and is now has the chutzpah to complain about the ethics of possibly paying the peer reviewers as well, who are also being asked to donate money when the only one who's making any money is the journal. The whole thing just makes me want to scream. I'm yeah. so cross. Yeah, to be fair, I don't know that it's the journals who are saying it's unethical, although I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's people who are saying that if you pay reviewers that you will get you know, potentially biased reviews. You'll get people who are just doing it for the money. Well, and then we so shouldn't pay lawyers. Okay. Let's like I'm stop paying lawyers. Let's not pay teachers because it's going to bias them. I mean, everybody gets paid to do work. Where is why, the, why is this an exception? Yeah. Whereas the, I think the journals are saying it will, it will cut into our bottom line right. or well, I don't make feel it very sad feasible. I don't either. I don't either. But how, but in order for things like that to happen, in order for a massive change like that to happen, people would have to – people meaning uh, us – would have to demand it, right? We'd have to say we are not doing any more reviews until – we all get paid for this. I'm I'm not sure I'm feel the need to to go on strike over this. So, but I think not the, that we've all gone on strike, but I I, I myself because I review many fewer papers now sure, than I used to. I do too. And it's not in a strike. Same. It's not like I'm actively striking. It's just I think Chris, like you're saying, my I don't have the time anymore, and this is an un totally unacknowledged or unaddressed element of our jobs. I mean, I think the. The article was making the point, like, is this an embedded part? Is this like an obligation to the field to review? And if it is, how intense is that? Is that like, is that a paper a week or is that a few a year? Like, what is the, what is the obligation? If it's part of our job or the obligation of our work that's kind of outside of our, the structure of how we're paid or how we're, you know, kind of moving things forward, what what is the nature of that obligation? Yeah, so I've heard, so, so the rule of thumb I've heard is for every paper you submit, if you have to get three reviewers for your paper, then you should be willing to do three reviews for every paper you submit. Now, I assume when they say, I mean, obviously that would mean the you are first author on that paper because we don't have multiple authors. But so you do the math. So if you're going to publish five papers a year, you should be willing to do 15 reviews. I don't know. That sounds like, that a, lot. Like a, lot that like a lot. That seems like a lot. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot. So I don't know. But if, but, but if we don't, then we run out of, Reviewers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't help thinking that part of the problem is that there are just too many journals and we don't need this many journals because it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be the case. There's no question there are that too many the, journals. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem to me that the, that the, the problem is that there are too many good journals, that too many like journals of the caliber of science and New England Journal and Lancet. That is not the problem. The problem is that the bottom end is just expanding and expanding and expanding of like many, many, many more like very niche journals or like, mm. you know, rather poor journals with very poor editorial standards who are still demanding peer reviews for all their articles to, to give themselves some legitimacy. But the, but the problem, the legitimacy is not solved by having peer review. The, the legitimacy is by running a really good journal. Even the best journals are like, I think, going down and diluting their brand, you know? Yeah. I would be curious to know whether we think the better journals, however you want to define that, have as much of a problem getting peer reviewers because my my assumption is that when people are faced with the challenge of I'm being asked to do too many, they reject more at the 
what they consider to be the lower end of quality. They want to review for the higher end because that's where the higher impact papers are going to be that they want to be, you know, the ones to review. So I'm guessing this is not an evenly distributed problem. And if that were the case, then maybe essentially what's happening is people are going to vote with their feet. Feet is probably the right term, but, and just say, you know, we're those journals that are lower here, again, however you want to define that, are just simply not going to be able to find reviewers, whereas the higher-end ones are. And then it's the ones in the middle that are going to Get sort of be squeezed. Yeah. Well, what, what do you, where do you fall on this, Jess and, and Matt? What do you think about being paid to, for your labor? I'd be happy to be paid for my labor. <laughs> and as a, I mean, I think also it would improve the quality of the reviews. I mean, you know, because you because you were feeling I don't have that much a time, right? And you say, feel like okay, it's kind of like I'm study being, section. Like if you're even if you're getting paid a token amount, the idea that there's a recognition that you're putting in a couple of hours towards this, you're more likely to sit down and kind of give it a thoughtful review. I feel like, you know, because of time pressures, even the reviews that I do now are probably not as good as the reviews I did eight years ago, for example, in terms of the intensity of the time I could devote to looking through the paper and looking through the tables and kind of really trying to ask them deep questions. Agreed. My reviews are are shorter and, you know, they're not. So I, I think, I think, Paying is good. I also think kind of a professional editorial review is not a bad idea either. That if the journal wants to have three reviews, maybe one or two of those are not peers, quote unquote, but maybe those that's a staff. Right. right? We're following some sort of algorithm. We're following an algorithm or are looking for kind of standard things. And then maybe there's one kind of quote unquote expert review of someone who has that niche knowledge in this particular field. I don't I mean, I, I think things would be missed in that regard. But I think having some more staffing would would help in some ways, too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there are more and more journals now that are essentially effectively expanding their editorial staff and essentially having a cadre of people who are on the editorial board, but they are not primarily finding reviewers for papers. They are serving as you know, go-to peer reviewers and they're, you know, doing sort of more. So effectively what happens is those people are saying, okay, I'm going to do X number of journal reviews per year. I'm just going to give them to one journal. And maybe that's how journals end up solving this problem. The editorial staff, which is typically, you know, folks like us, but at the end of the day, that still leaves the publisher who's making all the money with a problem that gets solved without them having to spend any money. And so I, I don't know the answer, but I'm, I'm not opposed to being, being paid for sure. Yeah. I, I, I admired this, uh, this factoid they threw into the intro where they described the amount of labor that goes in on an annual basis. Oh, yeah. So like 15,000 years on peer review in 2020 alone. 15,000 person years of work went of into work. peer review in aggregate. Oi, 15,000 years, not hours, years of free labor. Oi. That is sweet for somebody. So wouldn't that apply? So that would imply that you could hire, you would need to hire to staff all these journals with professional peer reviewers. 15,000 individuals. Peer reviewers to do it all. Boy. Yeah. Or you can cajole people into doing it for free. Oh. And then you get what you get, which is that these very low-end journals get very poor peer reviews. Yep. And really the peer review process is a box check, not a legitimate way yeah. of improving quality. Well, that's quality. the end question, right? Like is, you know, what does this actually entail? What the meaning of peer review and maybe 
not yeah. so much. Right. Can that, I ask, that is a bigger question. Can I ask the two of you one, one question? It's like, do you, do you think that one other approach might be that, that we decide that there are certain journals that have, you know, a certain level of credibility or established quality for which peer review should be prioritized and that below that threshold, we should stop doing peer review and just say, and stop pretending that it matters and just let basically go to a, a med archive model for the lower tier. So, so if you do that, and I'm not saying that's a bad idea, you don't, you don't, you don't need journals though. Then you just, cause then you're just publishing, you're just online. publishing then your you just own put it stuff. in a preprint server but or maybe that would be okay. Oh yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with pay, that. I'm just saying, pay, you know, Med Archive to you know, right. absolutely. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not sure we need the journal at that point. So I think effectively what we're saying is the question which we know the answer to, which is, do we need this many journals? No. It's, it's also a question of the role of editorial review. I mean, my group we had a paper about a year and a half ago, a COVID paper that was accepted after editorial review without peer review, and. Really? And that was the first time that had happened to like any of us in the group. And it caused like a lot of anxiety in our, we're like, what do we make of this? Like, does this mean, does this, you know, suggest that this journal is of such low quality that they didn't even send it out for peer review and we should retract it and, and get a full peer review. What and then we kept it in. Yeah. We kept it in. I mean, the we decided the journal was reputable enough, and the the editor who had accepted it was the editor in chief of the journal, and he was reputable enough. And I think he, it seems as if he made the executive decision that this paper would get through peer review. And so he was going to save himself the effort of oh, yeah. interesting, um, interesting oh, yeah. right? Doesn't but then, like it, but it made us all feel I really queasy. And right. And, you know, it was under, it was COVID. This was a, you know, an infectious disease journal. There was probably lots coming in at the time, but it was really tricky. And we, you know, so I feel like we lived this a little bit the question of having a paper accepted without peer review. Yeah. And then and yeah, that yeah. doesn't feel great. No. It really doesn't feel good. So I think like we still expect it and we think that it lends quality and gravitas to our work. I understand. Even if it doesn't at the end of the day. All right. Let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I managed to not print mine out. So I'm going to skip this time, which is fine because we're over time anyway. So, Chris, what do you got? Well, I saw this wonderful story in the New York Times by a journalist, Stephen Johnson, who I think is um, kind of a historian of technology. And I just thought it was it was such a wonderful article and so interesting. It concerns two inventions by a guy called Thomas Midgley Jr. Have you heard of this gentleman? I, I had read not, but I read the article. So, the article. I, I so you know where I'm going yeah. with this. Uh, you, I didn't. No, I didn't read it. So. Okay, so Midgley was was a was an engineer who became by default a chemist, a uh, chemical engineer. But he was originally a mechanical engineer who was um, active in the first part of the 20th century. And his he has two major contributions to the modern era. The first was dealing with the problem of engine knock in early cars. Okay, so they go, when you, you know, take your Model T forward up a hill, it starts going kakunk, 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 as it, as it fights. And so he invented a, a rapid camera so he could sort of figure out what was going on with the pistons and figure out why the thing, and he eventually realized that the kakunk, kakunk, the knocking that we call it now was caused by premature combustion of the gasoline. And so he deduced correctly that what he needed to do was to make gasoline less combustible by adding something in it so it would not explode quite as easily. 
And so he searched out around for all sorts of different compounds and eventually found one, which he added in, and it beautifully solved the knocking problem and uh, led to the foundation of what was what, what eventually became the ethyl gasoline company. And then that version of fuel was what powered the industrial era. So this was his first major contribution. I'll come back to that. Oh, you're going to come back to that. <laughs> the second one was a similar problem, which was refrigeration. And so earlier refrigerators, which require a compressor to move a coolant through a system and then to facilitate the heat exchange, used all sorts of coolants that were risky. Uh, one of them was liquefied ammonia, which is highly explosive and sometimes would Don't want that. would leak out and blow up and kill people <laughs> when your refrigerator went kaboom and destroyed the kitchen. <laughs> Not good. Um, another one was to use certain chlorine chemicals, which uh, were highly toxic. Methyl chloride, I think it was one of them. And there was a infamous example of the 19, excuse me, the 1893, oh no, this was an explosion, but methyl chloride had led to dozens of deaths around the United States due to accidental leaks in their refrigerant oh, uh, no. systems. And so this was, you know, for example, Frigidaire was using sulfur dioxide for a while. <laughs> so just like oh my sulfur dioxide, which is, you know, I don't know if that's actually what they used in, in World War One for gassing people, but it's in the same family of compounds. These refrigerators got the, the Appalachian death gas iceboxes because of their tendency to either leak and kill people around them or to explode abruptly and kill people around them. Not good. And so he came up with a new refrigerant, which was non-explosive and apparently non-toxic. And he would demonstrate this the non-toxicity by, on stage, taking a giant inhalation of this stuff in front of an audience and then breathing it out and saying, see, I'm just fine having breathed this. Now, you know, so these these were like fantastically effective inventions, shall we say, that that you know, drove the modern era and the industrialization. They were key tools of that. But it turned out that both of them had an externality, which the economists <laughs> used to describe the law of unintended consequences. So with, with ethyl, it turned out that the, the magic secret sauce was lead as the additive. So basically heavy metals in general, they didn't have uranium um, yet to use, but they used lead as the, the heaviest element they could find. And that got rid of knocking, but of course blanketed the entire world in a fine patina of lead leading to all sorts of consequences. And there's an interesting piece to this because there was a, a, a fellow who was trying to deduce the true age of the earth based on the decay of uranium to lead through nuclear fission, right? Over time. And so you would take pure uranium samples and you would look at the decay, eventually use that as a molecular clock. He couldn't get his his apparatus to work because of the lead contamination on everything, oh, everywhere. Sure. Not like specifically to his lab, but just everywhere. Everywhere is blanketed with lead dust. And so he he had to come up with this super, 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 super like ultra clean apparatus to basically filter out the background rate of lead that was Oof, everywhere gross. before he could finally say that the world is a billion years older than we used to think. And then of course the, you know, the, the slight downside to the refrigerant problem, as these turned out to be the chlorofluorocarbons, um, was that they burned a hole the size of Iceland through the ozone layer afterwards. And so also didn't see that one coming. Midgley, I think, gets a pass on the refrigerant because really nobody saw that one coming with the CFCs. But with the lead, he he gets a black mark because lead was already known to be deadly poisonous. Yeah. And in fact, there were many other things that could be added to gasoline to make it less combustible that would not spread lead everywhere, but they were not patentable. So oh. he discounted them. One of them is one we use already, currently, ethanol. 
So if you add ethanol, it slows. That's why we actually use ethanol in our gasoline, that it slows down combustion and gets rid of knocking, as does octane, which is, I don't know if it's non-toxic, but it is uh, certainly not lead. Yep. So anyway, I thought this was a, a, a fascinating a article. So it's called The Brilliant Inventor Who Made Two of History's Biggest Mistakes yep. in the New York Times. This is a great story. Strongly recommend this article. Yep. All right, Jess, what do you got? Very cool. Briefly picking up on the topic of gas. I am reporting on a phase two clinical trial of a vibrating pill to cure chronic constipation. And Mm. this was a study that was conducted at Augusta University. And I thought it was actually very, like a little silly in the headline, but actually very interesting in the follow through. So what these researchers have been working with is a pill to stimulate muscle movement in the lower intestine and the colon. And so it's a pill, they describe it, and it just vibrates, like at sporadic times during the day. And this was a clinical trial. There's about 300 participants, 300 women, interestingly, because apparently chronic constipation affects women more than men. And so they restricted the study to women, and half of the participants got the vibrating pill, the other half of the participants got a placebo. And it, I think they, they, they would continue to take it, so they would pass the pill, and they would continue to take the pill, and then they reported information about bowel movements. And it was really interesting. And it's so apparently the pill that at the end of their study doubled the ability of adults to use the bathroom in a regular way. Mm. And one of the fascinating aspects of this study, the authors are talking about how most of the medications for constipation affect the gut microbiome. And so our, our medication yeah, yeah. that then can Which, lead to all kinds of other problems involving, yeah, externalities involving the GI tract and other body systems with the manipulation of the gut microbiome. And this pill, because it has, I think they were saying it was the first mechanical pill that has a yeah. mechanical action in instead of a medication that's being distributed. And it can be personalized on an app where you can say, this person's (laughs) body system, they're going to stimulate the colon at different times. And it could be personalized to that individual, which was- like your toothbrush with different vibrations. The different vibrations. And the funny thing was too, is that people with, in terms of the, the blindness of this study, the participants reported being able to feel their colon vibrate. They could. They could feel it. They could feel it. It didn't seem to cause- adverse effects in the study, but it did not go unnoticed, the sensation. But it did seem to work. And it it kind of, you know, the authors themselves were kind of promoting this. This was published in the journal Gastroenterology, but they were promoting it themselves as the opening of a new kind of modality for for pills. Like, could they have mechanical action in addition to medication? And there's, you know, there's certainly there's things like a different, you know, like the, what do they call those things? I'm blanking on the term that they put into people's hearts. Oh, defibrillator? A defibr- defibrillator, like where to keep, you know, there are certainly mechanical things. A pacemaker, a pacemaker that can be, a defibrillator is like, so they have like auto, yeah, right, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, but like there certainly are mechanical things that we can ingest that that have mechanical action. So would they have to take it every day? One of these every day? I actually don't remember the details, but right. I think so. They were presumably. they were kind of taking it if on. It's a, yeah, effective, presumably yeah. it comes out. I, it comes out. I don't think it's. And you're not going to reuse it. No, you I have don't to go think find so. It, which would be I don't think unpleasant. so. Anyway, so <laughs> oh. 
in the future, keep an eye out for right. vibrating pills. Vibrating I, pills. I, I can imagine the sewers being filled with these. <laughs> yeah. They're oh, like alive, a, too. They're like, Ooh. What are the sewer rats going okay, to be? Yeah, little, okay. Too vibrating much. Vibrating pills everywhere. Too much. Too much. Don't need to know that. <laughs> Matt doesn't like it when the conversations <laughs> go go south. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthEx, which Chris now knows what that means. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange He's website extra. at pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and production, and Mark Takachi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>